covenant. As we take a look tonight, again, I don't want us to ever lose our context as we take a look at Jeremiah 29, 30, and 31, which are probably, you know, real big high points in Jeremiah's message. But understand, when we look at this, these messages were given at the absolute lowest time for the nation of Israel ever. So, you know, as you're reading these, as you're considering these incredible promises that God gives, remember, they lost it all. Everything's gone. Every house, family members, you know, there's been horrible deaths, a a siege of a lot of starvation that was going on. Just a crazy, crazy time of the children of Israel just being, you know, judged ultimately by God. And as they've been going through this time of judgment and they're lined up in Ramah and they're being chained and shackled to one another... For the journey from Ramah to Babylon, where they're going to spend the next 70 years, then God gives them these promises. Jeremiah writes these things in a letter. And the scripture lays out for us in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning at verse 27. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. I like that. Just that phrase. Every once in a while, I I like to just let that ruminate. The days are coming, says the Lord. God is saying to the children of Israel, this is not the end of the story. This is not the last chapter that's going to be written. A variety of times in our own lives when we're going through hardship or difficult times, and we can get our eyes solely focused on the storm, or on the winds, or on the problem. And like Peter, we begin to sink, we despair, we lose hope. But God says to them during that time, The days are coming. Better days are coming. Better promises. The fulfillment of the promises that Jesus gave in in Isaiah chapter 61. When he said, I've come to give you beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. He said, I've come to turn the world around. I've come to turn your life around. Doesn't mean everything we'll face will always be easy. But it means that it will culminate in good. And so he begins with that phrase in, uh, in verse 27. Behold, the days are coming. That tells us a time frame. This will occur. Behold, the days are coming that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. Listen, he's saying the days are coming. Right now you're going into captivity. Northern kingdom's been in captivity for 150 years. They're already, as far as you know, obliterated. You're going into captivity, but the Lord says the day is coming when I'm going to reconcile that. And Judah and Israel will be brought back together. And in that reconciliation, I'm going to sow within Israel, the combined Israel, men and beasts. There's going to be a time of fruitfulness. There's going to be a time as they come together that that God builds. Remember the, the promise that God gave to Jeremiah when he said, I've called you a prophet from the womb, a prophet to the nations. He says, I've called you to tear down. But he also said, I called you to build and to plant. The tearing down has occurred. Now he's focused on, it's time to plant. You tell them, the days are coming when I'm going to bring them back. When I'm going to put the pieces back together. When once again, the men will be fruitful. Once again, the beasts will be there in the field. Now they're all dead. Wiped out, scared away, taken away, gone. 
But the Lord says the day will come when you're going to see that fruitfulness again. You're going to see that that uh, return. You're going to see God do this thing. And it says in verse 28, And it will come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to throw down and to destroy and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. God's saying with the same fervor with which judgment came, reconciliation will come. The same fervor with which the judgment and the destruction came upon them, God has that same exact fervor in terms of rebuilding, replanting, getting them back on track. God's desire, remember what he told us in Jeremiah 29, 11, my thoughts toward you are thoughts of good and not of evil, that God wants to establish them and build them and raise them up, and that's the focus that he has here. So he says, listen, the same way that I've done these things, I'm going to build Just as the judgment came, you can be sure that the reconciliation is going to come. That God will fulfill His promises to Israel. And He says in verse 29, And in those days they shall say no more, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. And we still see some of this today, where where rather than taking responsibility for our own actions, even people even like to put a biblical spin on it, And they'll say, well, I'm under a generational curse. You know, four generations ago, my dad was a no-count loser, and now, you know, so am I. But the Lord says, you're not going to say that anymore. You're not going to say it's my dad's fault. You're not going to say it's my mom's fault. You're not going to say it's uh, the fault of the town I grew up in, or I grew up in poverty, or the city I grew up in, or whatever. The Lord says, you're not going to say that. From now on, every man is guilty on his own, not on somebody else's account. Jeremiah is very clear. He says, everyone shall die for his own iniquity. You're not dying for your father's sin. You're not dying for your mother's sin. You're not dying for your uncle's sin or any other sin. You're dying for your own. Everyone will die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. His teeth. The concept, I think we, we run too far with the concept of generational curses when we read the scripture that declares to us that the Lord's going to bring judgment to the third and fourth generation. We take off running with that and we make these, these crazy uh, interpretations of it and hear God saying, listen, it's clear. Everyone's going to pay the price for his own, for his own sin. But he's going to go on again with this same phrase. Listen to the phrase again. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. I love that phrase. And as we consider that, I want you to just hold your place here and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 is an incredible commentary on this section of Scripture that we're going to be looking at. And I think it'll help... Uh, help us grasp some understanding if we take a look at it and we see what God has for us. So as we take a look, Hebrews chapter 8, we can see verse 7 is where we're going to pick it up. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then there would be no place, or there then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. And that's just where we left off. My tail fall off yet? So many wires hanging off of me there. (sighs) Anyway, because finding fault with what? 
Listen, this is important because of finding fault with what? He doesn't find fault with the law. He says, I find fault with them. The problem was not the law. The law is good. Paul declares in the book of Romans, we see even here, there's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is with us. Our ability to keep it. The law is good. But he says, listen, it's not that there's a problem with the first covenant, but there's a problem with them. That's why the second is given. So, because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I brought them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant as And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their mind and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but what? To fulfill it. So the the concept here, the obsoleteness of the law, is that the law is kept in Christ. Listen, this is it's kind of a mind-blowing concept if you can really wrap your mind about around it but in in first john the lord says that if you sin the love of christ is not in you and that idea is that if you're walking in sin i'm having problems today you notice that if you're walking in sin perpetually there's a question to be answered but he also says the soul that's in christ does not sin Now, if we sit back and we look at that scripture and we say, well, then I must not be in Christ because I sin. You're missing the point. The point is, what happens to you when you are in Christ? The moment that you are in Christ Jesus, you as an individual are no longer visible. Only thing that's visible is Christ. And in Christ, you do not sin. Because he's covering you. He's all around you. The be- you know, I love the, the illustration. Is if I stood up here and ate a brownie, the brownie is in me. You can't see the brownie. Because it's in me. And when I am in, you see the effect. When I am in Christ Jesus, when I am in him, you cannot see because his righteousness, his fulfillment of the law covers me. Totally in Christ, I do not sin because I'm in Christ. He covers me. His righteousness is mine. The other concept that John talks about is a life then who says they're in Christ and continues to walk in habitual sin. Not that sins occasionally, habitual sin. And Hebrews has several chapters to read to talk about Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 10 about the soul that regards the blood of Christ as a common thing. Like it's no big deal. It says, oh, that person might not be in Christ. But if you're in Christ, your sin's covered. It's gone. It's gone. 
And so as we look at this, the fulfillment of the law for you and I, to walk and fulfill the law, has been accomplished in Christ and is imputed to your account when you are in Christ Jesus. When you have trusted Christ Jesus, you have fulfilled the law. Because he did. And you're in him. It's, the thought is so free. It was so freeing to the Apostle Paul that he was blown away by the liberty. The freedom that says, man, you know, I don't no longer have to, to, to take a look and watch my every step. All I got to be concerned with is, am I in Christ Jesus? Abide in him. Abide in, if you abide in Christ, you ought also to walk as he walked. Didn't the scripture say that? Now you think about it. If you are physically in Christ Jesus, you don't have any choice. You walk like he walked because you're in him. The, the book of Ephesians puts it like this. We are already seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want to ask you, where is Jesus right now? With the Father, right? Seated at the right hand. And we are the body of Christ. So where are we? In some manner of speaking, we are already seated in the heavenly places. Because we are in Christ Jesus. It's an incredible concept. It's, a, it's an incredible thing to wrap our minds around it and, and, and really grasp it that Jesus fulfilled the law, so in Christ we have fulfilled the law. And because he has already fulfilled the law, when I begin to grasp the magnitude of what he's done for me, my response is to love him more. I want to be abiding in him to make sure that I'm in the center of his will. We say all those things, but when you realize being in the center of his will means I'm walking like he walked. I look like him. I'm in the middle of Christ Jesus, and that's where we want to be. But listen, as we look at Hebrews, last thing I want you to look at, Hebrews 9.15. says, and for this reason, still talking about the old and new covenant, for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of inter- eternal inheritance that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance i love it when god uses those words because you you can't argue with eternal how long is eternal forever it has a beginning point and then it goes forever eternal inheritance the promise of eternal inheritance when we abide in Christ, you ask me if I believe in eternal security. Absolutely. If you're in Christ Jesus, you are eternally secure. Period. End of discussion. It's eternal. It's everlasting. It cannot end. We are in Him wholly, completely, utterly. And as we look at this, this concept, as we begin the, the back in Jeremiah 31... Hebrews 8, 7 and 8 tells us the reason that there needed to be a new covenant was because we are the problem. We can't keep the old. The old is good, but we can't keep it. So God himself came in the flesh and kept the old covenant and then ushered by the shedding of his blood a new covenant. Isn't that what Jesus said? That's what Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke when he lifted up at the Last Supper the cup and he said, this cup symbolizes my blood, the new covenant of my blood shed for you. He says the new covenant is ushered in by his death, by his blood, the blood of the Lamb. And at that moment, no longer under the old covenant, we come under the new. 
under the new that Jeremiah is talking about with Israel as they're going into captivity. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. When it's not going to be about how good you can be. It's going to be about, do you love me? Do you believe? Do you trust me? It's going to be about these things. Behold, the days are coming in verse 31. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. We're going to see seven things in this new covenant. The first thing is a promise of reconciliation. In the first verse, in, in verse 31, we see a promise of reconciliation. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with who? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. When this is given, neither of those exist anymore. So God's saying, you're going to exist again. There will be a house of Israel and a house of Judah reunited. A promise of reconciliation. And then he goes on in verse 32. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. Now there have been, when you study the scripture, several covenants in the Bible. So we want to understand what covenant is he talking about. Well, he tells us in verse 32. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That's called the Mosaic covenant. That's what we commonly refer to as the law. The law where God said, if you do this, then I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the first covenant, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the law. If you obey, then I will be your God and you will be my people. It was, it was hanging upon the person's ability to perform the law, to do, to obey. If you, then I. But as we look at this, he says, not like that covenant. It's not going to be like that covenant anymore. Not like the Mosaic covenant. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Now, as we look at the new covenant, the new covenant is a marriage covenant. It's a marriage covenant between, ultimately, God the Father and the nation of Israel. You remember when we were in chapter 2 of Jeremiah, God was asking for a divorce. Because they cheated on him, right? They were, they were uh, uh, likened unto a, a woman who wouldn't stay home, who was out chasing other men. And the Lord said, I want a divorce, but he never did follow through with it. And here he says, I'm going to make a new promise, new covenant. I love it because it, it, it so fits with the book of Hosea. When God called Hosea to live out a, a, an illustration, a parable in his life. What was the parable? God said, Hosea, go marry a prostitute. And so he went and he married a prostitute, but she would not stay home. She ran around. She, he names his children. I think, I can't remember the, the names of his children, but something like uh, not mine and and from another man or something. I mean, it, it's crazy, the names. But then the Lord tells Hosea, you go back and you bring her back. You bring her back to your home. She's all used up. Broken down. Nobody wants her anymore. And the Lord says to Hosea, you go get her. And in his life, then the Lord says, this is how you will explain this to the people. They are like your wife. And I am like you. The story of reconciliation and bringing them back. The concept is they broke. They could not keep it. The, the problem's not the law. The problem's me. I have a sin nature. Adam had a shot. 
Adam had a shot. Why? Because he was born without a sin nature. Well, he wasn't born. He was created. And from the moment of Adam's fall, he has passed on to every living man, woman, and child a sin nature. And from that moment, we have had the understanding of what to do, but not the power to do it. And here in the new covenant, God's going to fix that. He says in verse 33, the second thing, the second thing is, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts. The second promise is a promise of regeneration. Before the Lord said of the nation of Israel in Jeremiah 17, 1, your sins are written in, with iron on the stone of your heart. And here in the new covenant, the Lord says, I'm going to put my law. I'm going to put my will. I'm going to put, I'm going to put these things, my law on your minds and write it on your hearts. I'm going to change you from the inside out. Before the law was outside in. You understand? The law was outside on a stone tablet. Now it's going to be inside. God says, I'm going to begin a transformation inside you. A promise of regeneration. A promise that he's going to write these things inside of us. and change us from the inside out. And then we come to the third thing. Promise of possession. You remember what I told you about the Mosaic Covenant? Don't miss this. If you obey, then I will be your God and you will be my people. But there's no declaration of that here in the New Covenant. What's he say? And I will be their God and they will be my people. God says, I'm going to regenerate them from the inside out. And now it's not about performance. It's about relationship. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. He changed it all. He changed everything. He, he changed everything that there was that could be changed. He, he gave us the promise of reconciliation, the promise of regeneration, and then the promise of possession. You are my people. And I am your God. We belong to each other. That's a new covenant. That's a new covenant. Fulfilled. Fulfilled or beginning to be fulfilled anyways in the life of the church. Listen, he goes on. He goes on in verse 34. And no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall, for they all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them, says the Lord. They all shall know me. The second promise is a promise of evangelization. They're going to know me. This word for know is interesting. This is what it means. The intimate personal knowledge which arises between two persons who are committed wholly to one another in a relationship that touches mind, emotion, and will. Intimate personal knowledge. What's he talking about? They never had that in the Old Testament. They never had that in the Old Covenant. They never had... This is relationship. This is knowing Him. This is touching mind, emotion, and will. This is to know God. He's saying, listen, not only is there going to be a, a reconciliation and a regeneration, and not only are you my prized possession, the treasure of the parable, but then he goes on and says there will be evangelization. People are going to know me. People are going to know me. Listen, as we look at the new covenant, and as we, as we want to understand it, 
Understand that the new covenant is going to be, we're going to see minor fulfillments here. We see minor fulfillments now at the time of the church. We're going to see utter and complete and total fulfillment at the return of Jesus Christ. We just got a taste of it now. He said that the Holy Spirit in your life is going to be a guarantee of better things to come. When the new covenant is completely fulfilled. Like this. Paul said it like this. Now we see through a glass darkly. But then face to face. Now we know in part. But then we will know even as we are known. That we're going to see this utter and complete fulfillment. So is Israel. So will, so will everyone who believes all throughout time. They're going to see the same fulfillment, the same salvation that is wrought in our lives as a result of the new covenant, of the salvation which Jesus Christ brings. He says there's going to be the promise of evangelization. But not only that, then he goes on at the, at the second half of verse 34, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The fifth thing. There will be satisfaction for sin. We have that now. Satisfaction for sin. I will forgive their iniquity. And I want you to listen to this. Because this is how God expects you to forgive. I will forgive their iniquity. And their sin I will remember no more. You ever heard someone say, well I forgive them but I can't forget That's not how God forgives. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far your sins are removed. When there are people who have done... I'm not saying... We get on this subject every once in a while. When we talk about forgiveness, listen, forgiveness is not saying to someone what you did was right or okay. Forgiveness means I'm not carrying the burden of what you did wrong. I give the, the judgment of what you have done, the sin that you have committed, the thing you have done, I put in the hands of God. I'm not carrying it around anymore. I forgive you. You're, you're going to have to work out your issue with the Lord. As far as you and I are concerned, I don't remember it anymore. What a blessing in the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins. They didn't have that in the old covenant. Because you had to come right back next week with another offering, didn't you? And never was there the promise that one of the offerings that you would give, that you would kill that lamb and you would lay him on, and that's the last one I'm ever going to have to give because I'm not going to sin again. But there would be another one next week, wouldn't there? There would be Yom Kippur every year, still is. There would be the Day of Atonement until the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world that was sacrificed once for all. It's over. It's done. It's paid for. Your sin is forgiven you. And he doesn't remember it anymore. Because when he looks at you, he sees his son. Because you are in his son. He who knew no sin became my sin that I might become the righteousness of God. That's a perfect description of what it is to be in Christ. You're covered. You're perfected in him. For we are all just men made perfect. That's what Paul said. We are just men made perfect. How are we made perfect? Because of our relationship with Christ. Not because of our own ability. He already told us in the book of Isaiah that the best I could do is filthy rags, garbage, junk, trash. The only thing I can do that matters 
we were studying today, when we looked at uh, uh, Matthew chapter 14, you remember when they, they came to Jesus and they asked him, uh, actually in John chapter 6, they asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works of God? And he came up with a big old list, right? No, what did he say? Believe on the one whom he sent. Believe. That means trust your weight into Christ. Be found in him, in Jesus Christ. It's an incredible concept as we, as we consider it. The fifth thing, satisfaction for sin. God forgives and forgets our sin is paid for. It is finished. Isn't that what Jesus said? Paid in full, te celestai. It is accomplished. It is done. Then he goes on. We have five things now in verse 35. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day and the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name, uh, the Lord of the Sabaoth. For if those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. What's he saying? The sixth thing is that the new covenant is eternal. It has no end. The Lord says, listen, if the moon's going to not be in the sky anymore and the stars aren't going to be in the sky anymore and the sun won't be the light for the day and the moon won't be the light for night, if the waves aren't going to roar and you're not going to see these things anymore, then we don't have to worry about the new covenant anymore. The other thing he said in, that we can intimate from this same phrase is that he's never going to be done with the nation of Israel. So replacement theology has a real problem right here. Because God says, unless the sun doesn't shine and the moon doesn't rise and the stars aren't in the sky, I still have a plan for Israel. The other thing he says is, unless those things pass, the new covenant is still enacted. It will not pass away. It's eternal. The promise of reconciliation is eternal. The promise of regeneration is eternal. The promise of possession is eternal. The promise of the forgiveness of sins, the fact that there will be a satisfaction for sins, eternal. The promise that you will know God in the fullness of who God is. One day you will know God in the fullness of who God is. That's an eternal promise. The new covenant is eternal and it has no end. Thus says the Lord in verse 37, If heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off the seed of Israel... For all that they have done, says the Lord. Well, last I checked, science hasn't found the edge of space yet. There was a time when they looked up in the sky and they counted all the stars. And they said, this is foolishness. The Bible says that the stars are innumerable and we can plainly count that there's 3,476 stars in the sky. Yeah, but when they got a little more powerful telescope they discovered that well there's more stars than we thought billions upon billions upon billions upon billions an innumerable host how is it that the bible knew that before telescopes existed or maybe because it's written by the one who put the stars there that's how he knows that's how he knows 
For the foundations of the earth can be searched out. If all the mysteries can be solved, then I won't have a plan for Israel anymore. What's God saying? My promise to Israel is eternal. And we can also understand that his promise to us is also eternal. That's the beauty of Romans 9, 10, and 11. We, we study and sometimes we think, well, what's the big deal about the Jews or the nation of Israel? Here's the big deal. If God keeps his promise to them, even though they're the biggest knuckleheads you ever read about in the Bible, then he'll keep his promise to us because we are also the biggest knuckleheads. We do the same things they did. If God keeps his promise to Israel, he keeps his promise to us. That's why Paul writes Romans 9, 10, and 11. To tell us God still has a plan for them, just as He grafted us in, right? Just as He grafted us into the olive tree, the day will come when He will bring the natural olive branch back. And we see the beginning of that, May 14, 1948. The culmination of it, we won't see until the return of Jesus Christ. But we see God move. We see God begin to fulfill these promises that he lays out for us now he goes on remember i told you there's there's going to be seven we come to the seventh one the seventh one we'll see in verses 38 39 and 40 behold the days are coming says the lord that the city shall be built for the lord from the tower of hananel to the corner gate promise number seven of the eternal new covenant he promises us a new home When they left, everything's gone. Everything's trashed. There's nothing there. And then God says, listen, behold, the days are coming. Remember? Days are coming. It's not the last story. And they're going to rebuild the city from the Tower of Henanel to the corner gate. You want to know when that was fulfilled? Read Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1. Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem and has been given the okay to go back and rebuild he starts at the tower of Henanel and he begins exactly like Jeremiah said it was going to take place they put it back together but listen there's more to it than that as we take a look at it it's not just talking about that he says the surveyor's line shall again extend straight forward over the hill Gareb then it will turn toward Goath and the whole valley of, of the dead bodies and of the ashes and of the fields as far as a brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east it will be holy to the Lord it shall not be plucked up or thrown down anymore forever now why am I saying that this is a promise that speaks of a new home or home rebuild you remember the writer of Hebrews around Hebrews chapter 11 says that all these great heroes of the faith look forward they look forward to a city that have foundations, whose maker and builder is the Lord. They looked forward to a home, a homeland that they never had. Abraham lived his whole life in a tent, moving from place to place to place to place. He didn't have a homeland. He looked forward to a homeland. The promise of a home, a place where I belong. We see that in the nation of Israel, as we look at the nation of Israel and all the things that they've gone through in their existence, and we look at them and we realize how many t- times, how much time have they spent saying, where do I belong? And nobody wants them. Nobody wants them. I don't care what country they've been in. Nobody wants them. 
It is, to me, an allegory, a picture, a type, a model of that longing that once we put our trust in Jesus Christ that we have, because now it just doesn't get it done here. I mean, nice things are nice. That big old house or that, but sooner or later, how many times have we thought, all I need is, and we get it, and then two weeks later, all I need is, I don't even know how many times the words come out of my mouth. My wife cracks up every time she hears it. She just starts laughing. Yeah, whatever, she says. Yeah, whatever. You're going you're gonna, to, my wanter is eternal. It never runs out of wants. But what does that mean? What does that speak? Listen, that speaks that nothing here satisfies. That I'm longing for a homeland. And here he says, when God builds... Listen, you, you, you read in that verse where he said, in, in that valley of the dead bodies and the ashes. You know what he's talking about? The valley of Ben-Hinnom. Jesus called that valley Gehenna. It was his example of what hell is like. It's the city dump. It's where they used to throw away all the unwanted babies. It's where they used to sacrifice their children. It's where they'd throw away a dead body that nobody claimed. That all went to the same valley. And here the Lord says, listen, in that valley and all the garbage and junk and bodies and ashes and sin is going to be holy. When does that happen? I'm telling you, it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. And then the Lord said it's going to be rebuilt and what? Never tore down again. When's that going to happen? It can't be what he's talking about with Nehemiah because Nehemiah came back and built it again. And what happened? 70 AD, the Romans wiped it all out again. What's he talking about? He's talking about a home that he's building eternal in the heavens. A city that has foundations. He's talking about the new Jerusalem. Nobody's ever taken that down. The new Jerusalem roughly built to the size of the moon. Book of Revelation tells us that it hovers in the air. That the bride of Christ dwells there. It's the home of the believers. Built so big that it would be able to house every human who ever lived since the beginning of time. The New Jerusalem. Twelve foundations. Twelve gates. Each gate is a solid pearl. Remember, we talked about pearls, guys. We talked about pearls in Matthew. Pearls mean nothing to a Jew. That's unclean animal, oysters. Don't touch them, don't eat them, don't look at them. So why are the gates made out of pearl? Because it's not about the nation of Israel. It's about what is valuable to the Lord, that pearl of great price. The Gentiles for whom he would reach out, the treasure buried in the field, for which Jesus Christ gave all. That's that treasure that is purchased. And the first time he mentions it and builds it all out for us is in Jeremiah 31. When the people had lost everything. He said the days are coming. 
Now, you and I, we, we understand Jesus told us the new covenant began with, with his crucifixion. He told us his blood was the beginning of that new covenant shed for us, a new covenant. And we see pieces of it, but for you and I, the days are coming. And I don't have to study about God anymore. I'm going to know him. Paul said the same thing. Now through a glass darkly then, face to face, I will know him intimately. I'm going to have not just the kind of relationship I have now. I mean, I'm going to have a relationship where I can see him face to face, where I'll see his eyes, I'll see his face, I'll, 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 I'll know him like he knows me. Man, that is an amazing idea. And I'll never have to worry about where do I belong. Because Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and bring you unto myself that where I am, there you will be also. He's building it. Little pieces of this covenant we see. Often we see in prophecy and we see in in the plans of God, this, this fulfillment going on through time, looking to the ultimate fulfillment. And that's what we'll see when Jesus Christ returns. I'm not talking about the rapture. The rapture of the church, that's good for you and I. But that's not the culmination of the new covenant. The culmination of the new covenant, Jesus Christ returns, his feet hit the ground. He draws all the believing Israel back into the nation. Just like the scripture declares, I will bring you from the four corners of the earth and all of you will believe. That means anyone who doesn't believe is not going to be of Israel. They're going to be left out. You go to Israel today, less than 10% believe. So that hasn't happened yet. He hasn't brought them all. And there, last I checked, there's still more Jews in New York City than all of Israel. They're not home yet. But we see the beginning, right? The beginning of the promises that God gave. We know because the scripture declared for us in the book of Daniel that the, the Hebrew language would, would live again. At 2,000 years with no homeland. Who has ever held on to their language? You adopt the language of the land you're in. doesn't matter who you are for 2,000 years. But after 2,000 years, when... May 14, 1948 came around and they moved into Israel. Guess what language they still had? Hebrew. Well, listen, it's not by... It's, Daniel said it. Daniel said it. God's, God's word and the prophecies that God lays out for us are incredible. But when you think about that and you're thinking about the storms that you face and you're thinking about the struggles of life, I want you to remember this phrase. Behold... The days are coming. This is not the end. I don't care how it looks, how hurtful it is, how hard it is. Just like them, putting their hands and feet in chains, don't know where their kids are, headed off to God knows what. And the Lord said to them, Behold, the days are coming. There's better things ahead. I love that. I love just to chew on that. As we think about that tonight, why don't we just enter into a time of, of prayer. And I just invite you, Lord, lay something on your heart to, to share. I want you to share it. If you want to pray, pray with us. If nothing else, sit at the feet of the Lord and just bask in his radiance. 
as we just take a moment to seek Him. I want to invite you to, to just, uh, just do that. As we go into prayer, I want to invite you to, uh, to pray along with us. And when it's over, it's over. If you've got to go before it's over, it's okay.